You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is May 10th, the year of our Lord, 2020 jam-packed show. We have continued to have jam-packed shows even in the midst of quarantine season. College football season eventually going to get here or so, I'm told. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe to the channel and click the bell for notifications. A lot of you, just a flood of you, a stream of you, headed over to the Lake Kick podcast page or channel or whatever you want to call that. A lot of five-star reviews. I think we went over 100 yesterday. I think we should be in the thousands, and I think you guys can do that. So give us those five-star reviews on the podcast. And those nice written reviews are a very friendly touch at the end, too. Tonight, I'm not going to lead the show with it, but we are going to talk about yet another couple of major commits for Tennessee. These are not just these garden-variety class fillers. I know a lot of you are suggesting otherwise, but no, they are not. These are impact players. I'm going to lead the show with Texas in just a second. I think that maybe... I know a lot of people throw out the word blueprint. Blueprint. Everyone's following this blueprint. And right now, the blueprint everyone wants to follow is the LSU blueprint, the LSU model. Well, in a way, I think Texas could be on the verge of taking the first steps to following the LSU blueprint model, what have you. We'll talk about that in just a second. I've also got a number of your questions to get to, and we're going to talk about something else in the SEC East other than Tennessee, yet it loosely revolves around what Tennessee's doing right now. You know, if you'll notice on Twitter, etc., whenever Tennessee lands a new commitment, everyone talks about, well, okay, how does it compare to Georgia? How does Tennessee now compare to Georgia? Well, no commit, no one recruit. I don't care if it's Caleb Williams. Haven't heard any rumors there, but Caleb Williams is the top quarterback in the country. One of, depending on any service you look at, there's only one in our world, of course, even if he were to commit to Tennessee. That in and of itself doesn't close the gap between Tennessee and Georgia. No one commit's going to do that. Honestly, no one class ever does that. But there is a gap that we're going to talk about in the SEC East tonight. We're just not going to go maybe the way that you think we're going to go. But let's start in the Lone Star State. Is Texas back is a question I've never asked. Is Texas back is a question that we're not going to ask on this show. It is largely intellectually bankrupt. So here's what we do ask on this show. Where is Texas? In the grand scheme of things, if you've got a one to 130 best programs to worst programs, where is Texas? And if you believe like I do that they do belong at or near the top of the sport, if all things are humming, if all cylinders are being clicked on, then what does it take for them to get there? Well, I want you to go back with me. It's not too long ago. And I want to throw a name at you. Scott Woodward. What do you think about Scott Woodward? Well, 99% of you probably don't know the name. Our folks down in Baton Rouge certainly know that name, and maybe some hardcore SEC fans do. The folks in College Station do too. Scott Woodward is now the athletic director at Louisiana State University. He is a homegrown product. He is from Baton Rouge. They love him there. He is essentially the antithesis of the athletic director that they had in there before, who went by the name of Joe Oliva. So LSU, for a while, they looked good on the surface, and that's what they were. They were good. The problem was greatness was in the neighborhood, just up the road in Tuscaloosa and in any given year elsewhere in the SEC. So LSU could not get over that crimson hump, and therefore they couldn't get to Atlanta, and therefore they couldn't fulfill their ultimate goal of winning national championships. 
And you always thought, oh, it's the head coach's fault. Oh, we don't have a good enough roster. And everyone wanted to look at all of these different elements of the program that they thought was the separation. But what you didn't know is behind the scenes, their athletic department, if, if it wasn't a mess, it was certainly disconjointed. And there was a lot of friction where there shouldn't be friction. And then Joe Oliva's out and they go get Scott Woodward. And if you ask folks at LSU, what was the key to your success? Ultimately, up to and including winning a national championship last year, they don't start with Ed Orgeron. They don't start with some transfer. They don't start pointing you to any one recruiting class. They don't even start talking about their facilities. They start talking about Scott Woodward because once they got that block in place, then everything else just started to flow a lot more easily and a lot more freely. Well, here was the problem. The problem at Texas now is they've kind of been in the same boat. And the problem, just like with LSU, is Texas hasn't been bad. They haven't been terrible. They've been good. But good enough is only enough until greatness enters the picture. And Oklahoma has been a great program. And obviously, nationally, you've had enough other great programs to where if you're merely good, doesn't matter what your facilities look like, doesn't matter how good your resources are, if you're on-field product and if your program is operating merely at the level of good, then it's not going to be good enough, nor should it be good enough. And so a couple of weeks ago, we had the interview with Matthew McConaughey. He talked about Chris Del Conte. That's the current athletic director at Texas. And he spoke glowingly of Chris Del Conte. Wasn't the first time I'd heard someone say that. Probably the most reputable, uh, recognizable name that I had heard talk up Chris Del Conte. So like you normally do when someone talks someone up like that, you just kind of jot it down in the back of your mind. I know the name Chris Del Conte. I can't tell you that I had done a whole lot of research on him until then. So I store it away. Then Taylor Estes from our Horns 24-7 site gets in touch with me and says, Chris Del Conte wants to do a live virtual chat with the fans. 24-7 sports count, YouTube, open it up, let's do it. So we did it. And I was working out the other day as that was going on live. And I was listening to Chris Del Conte and it, it struck me so much, I went back and listened to it a second time. A lot of athletic directors are loosely aware of what goes on with any given sport in their athletic department. And they can give you the talking points, but they're not intimately familiar. Truth be told, fans, a lot of hardcore fans know more about the programs on a day-to-day -day basis than the athletic directors do because they got so much on their plate. Well, that was not Chris Del Conte. Chris Del Conte was talking in very, very vivid detail about the separation between where Texas is, where they have been, where they need to be. That dude's throwing out offensive linemen and the draft statistics like he runs a trivia challenge every Saturday night in his backyard. And so that struck me too, because the guy said all the right things. Now, I don't know, I've never met Chris Del Conte, so I don't, still don't know anything about him. I'm just, I'm taking all this in, right? And so he was very in-depth, he was very honest, he talked about the roster. I'll tell you what really struck me is, he talked about what Tom Herman inherited, what the process is to go from where they were to where they wanna be, and whereas every, not everyone, a lot of other people, when that Sugar Bowl win over Georgia happened, up to and including the starting quarterback of that team, wanted to shout, we're back, Texas is back, Chris Del Conte had a different take. And had I thought better of it, I would have clipped it for you tonight. But essentially what he said was, he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, we had a nice, solid first year, second year, all of a sudden we have this occurrence that happens. And just kind of a confluence of events lead us to the Sugar Bowl, and we get a big win over Georgia. Everyone thinks we're back. In reality, that was a misrepresentation of where we were in our climb back to hopefully the top of the sport, where 
we got there and then the next year we don't match that and we quote unquote only have a nice bowl win. I think it was the Alamo Bowl over Utah, but everyone thinks we take a step back. And he's He's saying, no, it's not a step back. It's just, we took this leap forward record-wise that wasn't truly indicative of where we were as a program. So anyway, I hear all that. And then I'm doing some more research on Crystal Conte. And that's when I went to our Horns 24-7 site today. They did something really well. They did it really, really well. It's well put together. It's well thought out. If, if you ever want to know what the health of your program is at any given time, find out what people think about the athletic director. And I'm not talking about people in the media. I'm talking about people who are on the ground day to day. They have a vested interest in the athletic department and the success of that program, either as a fan, as a booster, as a supporter, or in the cases of the people I'm about to read you select quotes from, people who cover on the ground the program from a very, very close proximity day-to-day basis. Bobby Burton is the publisher of Horns 24-7. And these are quotes. Basically, they asked themselves, let's rank the job that Crystal Conte has done so far at Texas. Bobby Burton, he has not rankled the wrong alumni. He's raised funds at a record rate while starting construction projects that have been needed for years. Chip Brown, all the money Crystal Conte has raised for the most sweeping upgrade of athletic facilities in school history, as well as a complete makeover of UT football game days. I'm going to get back to that in a second because that has been a big point of contention for people at Texas. He also responds to endless questions on Twitter. He holds town hall meetings every February to explain the athletic department budget. He answers questions from those in the audience. Jeff Howell, senior writer here, really hits on something well. He's been exactly what the athletic department needed in terms of Pay close attention. This is what they dealt with at LSU. Mending fences with a group of fans that by large, for lack of a better term, felt disenfranchised and disconnected from the university in the decade. He didn't say 10 months. He said decade leading up to Del Conte's arrival. One could argue the university's ability to connect with a common fan has never been better. Here's the money quote. Del Conte has either given or is giving Tom Herman everything he could possibly need in order to compete at a championship level. Taylor Estes, Chris Del Conte has done more in two and a half years than the previous three ADs had accomplished in more than a decade. This sounds so much. Cannot, in some cases, it almost sounds like they plagiarized quotes from people that I talked to at LSU during the Joe Oliva days. And then when he was out and Scott Woodward came in, This is what happened behind the scenes at LSU. LSU just went on to win a national championship. This is certainly not the time nor the place to predict Texas in the next 12 months, 24 months to win a national championship. What I'm telling you is there was a lot of rearranging of deck chairs. It felt like out there for a long time. This is what you have to do. Sometimes you have to go through the painful process of just gutting things. Now, you never have to start truly from the ground and rebuild at Texas. But now what's happening? What's happening is a lot of folks who are very instrumental in the success of that program, who felt disenfranchised by the former administration, are now back at the table, just like what's happened at LSU. Let me tell you what else happened at LSU. What happened at LSU is the folks who didn't need to be involved in the process or the folks who were halfway pulling for the purple and gold and then the other arm was pulling for their own self-interest, they were either set straight or they were shown the door. You don't don't hear about this because these are not names that would garner headlines. But they got the folks out of the way that were in the way in Baton Rouge, and they got folks in place that are all on the freight train moving the same direction. And that's what Texas athletics has to be, and that's what Texas football needs to be. Now, right at this moment, you don't look at Texas in fear. 
They know that. But here's what we do know now. Now that we're hearing from people on the ground, now that we're hearing from people who are well-connected at Texas, okay, to a man and to a woman out there, they tell you, okay, there were excuses. There was this excuse behind the scenes, that excuse behind the scenes. Well, now game day atmosphere is fixed, got record-breaking donations. We've got facilities going up, an overhaul, the likes of which we've never seen here in Texas, mind you, where they pride themselves on such things. What we know now... And if you're watching on YouTube, you see the picture at the bottom of the screen. That's Tom Herman. What we know now is all excuses are off the table. And we get to find out, is that the right guy? Because if he's not the right guy, they'll find the right guy. And Texas becomes a much, much, much more attractive program for pretty much anyone they want to go get at this point. But that's what I'm most excited to find out about. In the coming year or two, you find out Tom Herman's made staff changes. Tom Herman has gotten what he thinks is the best nucleus of a staff in there to win, the athletic directors walked in and just made sure, okay, from this point forward, if we got a seven and five season on the board, if we got an eight and four season on the board and we're underachieving, we know it's solely an in the coaching department problem because it's not me anymore. I did my job. Now they got to do their job. That's all you can ask for as a Texas fan right now. Let's move it on. Uh, I'm going to towards the end of the show, yeah, let me make sure of that. I'm gonna towards the end of the show. I'm gonna touch on the goings on with Tennessee today because they landed two more major commits. You might ask, as someone did in the chat early before the show started, how many are they allowed to take? Probably about 45. I think they're they're on pace for about 45 or 50 this class. That of course is a joke, but um, I think there's gonna be a lot of fluidity, shall we say? I think that class is gonna very much be in a state of flux. And I don't say that derogatorily. I think it's probably gonna be a benefit for Tennessee. But they landed, and they, by they, I mean Tennessee. Tennessee landed Aaron Willis today. That's a linebacker, four-star linebacker. They landed Caden Salter today. That's a four-star quarterback. We told you that was coming. Steve Wolfong's been all over both of those for a little while. More on that later. But as I told you to lead the show, every time Tennessee has landed a commitment, and that has been several times over the past couple of weeks alone, remember they've been on this recruiting surge, every time they've landed one, I've had a couple of reactions on Twitter. It's either been Tennessee fans excited out of their mind, which you should be, or it's been rival fans saying, well, he was only rated this, or their average star ranking is only this, or, well, they're still not going to beat Georgia. They're still not going to finish top five. Well, okay. But that's my point. My point is, you all keep going to Georgia. You all keep comparing Tennessee to Georgia. I'm looking at Florida. Why are we not paying attention to the gap between Tennessee and Florida? Because that team there in Gainesville is standing, as I see it, between Tennessee and Georgia. So let's dive into this for a second because I want to talk a lot about Florida here. And I want to talk about maybe how good enough is not enough in Gainesville, Florida. I, sometimes I get accused of only talking about the positives with these programs. Well, I don't think it's the worst business strategy in the world in the spring and summer. There's going to be quite enough losing in the fall where we can talk negatively about programs, teams, players who maybe need to have some negative light shined on them. But let's be real here for a second. And that's all I ask our Florida viewers and fans to be. Let's just be real here for a second. Because I'm not trashing your program. There's no reason to trash your program. Florida football is either good, very good, or, Ill, or, or great in pretty much every category. Um, here's the problem. They are great in the coaching department. They are great in the game day management department. No one's ever questioning that. And if you do, then I'll argue back with you. I don't think anyone's calling Florida recruiting great. 
I don't think you guys, if you're honest with yourselves, are calling your current recruiting staff great. Tim Brewster, you may have a couple of guys that individually you would say are great collectively. Is the recruiting at Florida right now great? It's not. Here's the problem you may run into. I want you to think, to me, I've always been a believer. Ever since I started doing this professionally, I've always been a believer that any kind of metaphor, any kind of analogy I ever need to use to make an illustration about football can be found in traffic. So let's put ourselves in the back seat of an Uber and you're on the interstate and you come up on construction and you know the drill. You got to get in a single file line and traffic is slowed down to a crawl and no one likes it, but you got to go through it. Well, you don't have a problem with that. You're not going to get mad at your Uber driver or your taxi driver because they've slowed to a stop. That's what everyone has to do. You're in a single file line. That's not what makes you mad. Okay, Florida could be sitting right behind Georgia and that doesn't make them mad. Here's what's going to enrage Florida fans. What's going to enrage them is if all of a sudden the dude who wants to skip 30 minutes of traffic has flown up past them and the driver's asleep at the wheel and Tennessee cuts right in front of you after you have had your stuff in place long before they ever hired the head man that they have up there. That's what's going to really, really enrage a lot of Florida folks. You don't have a problem. Well, you got a problem with it. You understand being behind Georgia right now. If Tennessee is able to bypass Florida, that's something that's inexcusable, should be inexcusable to Florida fans. Has it happened yet? Absolutely not. Could it happen? Let's talk about it. Because I think, and this is an opinion I hold, and I'm, I'm free to argue with you guys on it. I'm a believer that if things continue on current trajectory, I'm a believer Tennessee as a roster, Jeremy Pruitt's roster, will bypass what they have at Florida in a couple years. I don't think that they lack for coaching acumen at Tennessee. I think some people are hoping they do. I think some, some people are either hoping this recruiting class falls apart or this recruiting effort falls apart or it's fool's goal, it's a mirage. They've just landed some kids early and everyone else is going to bypass them late in the game. And I don't think that that's the case. I'm not telling you Tennessee's about to finish top three, but I'm, and don't even think about this class in particular. Think bigger picture. If the recruiting apparatus at Tennessee starts to consistently click at a higher level than it does at Florida, eventually you get a better roster in Tennessee than you do at Florida. That doesn't happen overnight. It certainly doesn't happen overnight. But I believe on our current trajectories here, given what we see at Florida, given what we see at Tennessee, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Now, what would things look like if that did happen? Because I, independent of what Tennessee's been doing, have said for quite a while, Florida is in this weird spot. They've been in this weird spot for quite a while. Uh, they're, not, they're not bad. When you're bad, everyone can see something has to change. That's the problem, in a way, if you want to call it that, at Florida. Florida's been one of the best programs in America. Florida's gone to back-to-back -back New Year's Six Bowls. Uh, Florida's been very good. they got one of the best head coaches in America. Last year, to give you an idea of how good that coaching staff is, I mean, they lose their multi-year starting quarterback and just seamlessly, whoop, not only do they put a backup quarterback in, but by all accounts, they upgrade their production and they just, they just on a dime, spin what they're doing and go like air raid, which they had not been doing previously. And so that, that coaching staff, they leave little doubt about how good they are. We're talking recruiting for a second. And the reason that I think Florida's recruiting has got to be better is not because it's bad, but it's good. It's good to very good in a league where there's just a little bit too much great. Alabama's in this conference. Georgia, you got to play them every year. LSU, you got to play them every year. Florida's not light years behind them in recruiting, but they are behind them in recruiting. 
you can't afford for another one of your rivals to pull up to that table. Again, Tennessee's not there yet. They're getting closer every day to being there. So I look at their staff right now, and I was talking to someone earlier today, uh, very close to the Florida program, and I just kind of said, you know, I look at this program, but you know, you're, you're really close to them. What do you think? Describe Florida's recruiting staff. And it was essentially what, what I think. T- you know, Tim Brewster is a guy who, I mean, I think most coaching staffs would want in their circle when it comes to recruiting. Craig Fitzgerald is a good recruiter they have. Behind that, who do you have that you feel confident can win those in-state battles? Because I keep looking, and some of these are going to be anecdotal, but I look at the receiver that Alabama just pulled out of South Florida this last weekend, and I was talking to one of my Florida buddies about him. And my Florida buddy's justification was, yeah, but I mean, Alabama always led for that kid. Well, that's part of the problem I'm talking about here. Yeah, so for those of you who ever question if Late Kick Live really lives up to the moniker live, yeah, we're live, and sometimes microphones die, but uh, apparently most of you stuck around. So let's continue. Where was I? I know it sounds crazy right now to suggest that, oh, Tennessee football, man, you look up and all of a sudden they're going to be a contender in the East. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm going to talk about Tennessee a little bit later on. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am saying is everyone can see something coming once it's there. There's no skill in that. What we're trying to do here is look at Tennessee, say they got something going up there. I think even the most cynical among us can recognize Hey, there's some nice positive momentum up there. Some of you think it's this sort of cute, gimmicky sort of momentum that's going to die off. I don't tend to think that, but whatever the case may be, I'm just telling you, I really wish that Florida would be a whole lot more proactive in getting serious about putting together a better recruiting staff. That's all I'm telling you. It may be that Florida, and I know they always like to wait maybe until a little bit later in the year. They love to get guys on campus during the season. It may be they make a move and finish top five in recruiting this year, and all this is moot. And if it is, I'll happy to. I'll be happy to go back and say, yeah, you know what I said back in May? Forget about all that. But at this point, you know, we look at Florida and kind of have been what they've been recruiting, which is good, but not great. Tennessee's ceiling, this recruiting staff ceiling is not just good, guys. It's not just very good. They've got an elite ceiling on their recruiting potential here. Maybe not this class. This class is going to be really good in its own right. But in the future, I think they can be great. So let's just keep an eye on that. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Our Brandon Marcello, uh, who used to be with Auburn Undercover, has now gone national. He's, he's right here with us. And he has a social distance feature coming out this week. He sat down with Greg Sankey. I think he went, Colin, what was it? 40 minutes, I think. He went like 40, 45 minutes with the commissioner of the SEC. Now, as any good marketer does, of course, we're going to leak some of it out early. And so I particularly noticed when Brandon Marcello wrote this little piece in advance of the full release this week about Greg Sankey and how many different contingency plans. Always love the word contingency. Anytime we can work it into a show, we find a way to. Contingency just means how many different disaster scenarios do we have? Well, I want to read some minor excerpts from this larger article that Brandon Marcello put out. And this whole interview with Greg Sankey, I think, will be up early this week. I should know I'm the one to post it, but I don't have the calendar in front of me. This is Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC, talking about contingency plans. I'll boil it down to our discussions. If you just ran down the whole list, we'd probably be in the mid to upper teens. What he's talking about is different potential scenarios just for the SEC. Ideas range from delayed seasons, games without fans, limited crowd size, conferences going it alone with their own schedules and more. The one guiding light, the Power Five, is aiming for an on-schedule start to the season. Still, they know that might not be possible. I would argue at this point that is far more unlikely than it is likely, given what we've heard in the last week from some officials out west. William King, we, we continue now, William King, Associate Commissioner for Legal Affairs and Compliance, was tasked with seeking feedback from the conference's 14 football head coaches in one-hour sessions. And there was one common thread. From the first of those conversations to the last, tell the commissioner he needs to communicate. We're focused on playing football. Our young people need to hear it. I think our fans need to hear that. Still, the commissioner was not willing to share his personal opinion on that situation. A couple of more quotes here, and then we'll circle back around. Greg Sankey talking now. For us to have our football season, our universities have to re-engage in a normal operating pattern. I think fundamentally... We have to be back in operation. I assume we'll have more distance learning or web-based learning. So essentially what we're talking about here is, and this has sort of been the, the going theme lately, you're not going to have football unless you have kids back on campus in the fall. Maybe there's more distance learning, web-based learning, but you got to have at least some semblance of normalcy for us to reasonably justify having kids on campus. And I don't think that's radical at all. Now, here's what I ask. What I ask and I'm asking it rhetorically, we're not going to get an answer tonight, I'm afraid. What I'm wondering, and I think we've been getting subtle answers more and more, is what happens if Conference A is ready to go and Conference B is not ready to go? Because that's likely. To, to me, that's far more likely than not. At that point, I think if you read between the lines with what some of these conference commissioners are saying, I think a lot of folks are ready to explore the possibility, give it a couple more months, but explore the possibility of, well, all right, we'd like you to be with us, but you know, Pac-12, for example, if you, if you guys aren't ready and we got all 14 of ours down here ready, we're leaving. If we have to leave without you, we'll leave without you, but we're leaving. Now, I, I'm probably going to wait a couple more weeks on talking about this. I can tell you from talking to someone this weekend there are teams in conferences where there is confidence that there's going to be a season who have already started to seek out, how should I put this, 
alternative potential plans, scheduling-wise, for having people on their schedule that they think may not be able to play a game when it's supposed to be played. So nothing formal, uh, nothing on the record, but that is happening behind the scenes. So I ask this, if you've got an SEC football season and you don't have a Pac-12 or you have a semblance of a Big 12 or whatever, however it shakes out, like when it comes to postseason, do you have a national championship? Do you have a bowl structure in place? I think the answers there vary depending on who you talk to, which means you get to really crystallize the importance again of your conference championship game. Because guys, you may be looking at a situation where your SEC championship game is as big as it gets for this particular year. I don't know. I just really wonder if you've got the SEC ready to go in September and you got the Pac-12 saying earliest we can get off the ground is December. I don't know that people are just willingly sitting around and waiting for that. And in turn, I don't know what that does with the overall national structure, national championship structure, bowl structure. Don't know what it does with any of that. Let's get to some Q&A, because this is where I wanted to talk about Tennessee for a second. Uh, we had a lot of questions about Tennessee in the, uh, in the inbox. So I figured I'd just choose one that best surmised everything that you were saying, and let's go with it. Thomas on YouTube. It's cute. Tennessee has a million commits, but look at their average star rating. They won't finish higher than Georgia. Thomas, I don't know that I found anyone suggesting that they will finish higher than Georgia. So I don't know where that comes from. Again, I've told you, this is what my inbox is littered with. I had some guy call me a Tennessee homer the other day. That's been a first. I assume it won't be a last, but that's been a first. But mainly, it's just been littered with any time I dare speak glowingly or even positively about Tennessee recruiting. I don't know how you don't right now. People remind you, oh, yeah, but look at their star rating. Look at their average star rating compared to fill in the blank. Well, yeah, but they're not going to finish number one. I haven't said they are. Yeah, they're not going to finish top three. I haven't said they are. They're not going to finish higher than Georgia. Haven't said they are. I want to know this. Are they going to finish higher than number 10? That's where they finished last year. And if they finish higher than number 10, you know what we call that? Improvement. Because that 10th finish was higher than, what was it, 13 or 14 they finished the year before, which we also call improvement. I would say to Tennessee fans, ignore all of it. You, right now, you got energy and you got excitement. You got genuine pride, enthusiasm, a lot of emotions, to be honest with you, that you haven't felt uh, to a varying degree all that much in the past few years of Tennessee football. Who cares what anyone else says, man? Enjoy it right now. And as for the you won't finish higher than Georgia sort of mantra that a lot of people have started, that drum's been beat to death already. Like I said, are they going to finish higher than 10th? So as I told you before, we were right here in this studio on National Signing Day, and it was Steve Wolfong sitting right where I'm sitting right now, and it was me and Barton Simmons over there. We had all the graphics made, had everything ready, and then Tennessee sort of messed us up, and they snuck inside the top 10. We didn't have a graphic ready for it. We had to make one on the fly, and that's why it sticks out to me. Tennessee, top 10, it's drilled in my mind because we didn't expect it that day. We thought they'd finish inside the top 15, but not the top 10. Well, now... They finished, I think, 13th a couple cycles ago, 10th this past cycle. What if they finish 7th this year? I mean, are we really going to sit here and say, stupid Tennessee, only able to finish 7th? Yeah, okay. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you thought about this? For all of those that assume this class is etched in stone because kids have verbally committed, your only potential path is their elite kids are going to decommit. When anyone wants to acknowledge that, hey, National Signing Day is a long way away, it seems all anyone ever wants to entertain is the concept that 
Tennessee's best commits could decommit. Well, that could happen. I don't have any intel that suggests it will. They just got better today. Again, you had uh, the linebacker, four-star linebacker, four-star dual-threat quarterback, Caden Salter out of Texas commit. Who knows what this week could hold? But let me ask you this. You know what we didn't have this spring that we normally have? We normally had uh, we normally have spring evaluation period. You got camps. You got all this stuff going on. Well, that didn't happen this year. I was reading Bud Elliott did a piece talking about what Tennessee's recruiting class ceiling is for this year. And he was talking about what reality is. Everything he said in there was right. I don't disagree with anything he said. It was data. I mean, there was nothing to disagree with. But what he was talking about is given the current state of this class, they're not on a pace that could finish top five historically just based on what a top five class historically looks like. And he talked about the amount of three-star kids, and he said, okay, let's assume, given that we didn't have a lot of in the spring what we normally have and there weren't as many abilities to put eyeballs on kids and bump their star rating, maybe there is an overwhelming amount of three-stars bumped to four-stars coming this fall, and maybe Tennessee benefits from that. Still, there's a long way to go between Tennessee's class, where they are right now, average star rating, and what a top five class would look like, yada, yada, yada. But my point is this. Even with all that taken into consideration, let me tell you what else is going to happen at Tennessee and everywhere else. Yeah, you may have some decommitments, but what you're also going to have is some good old-fashioned processing. And what that is, is Tennessee's about to fill their class up. What do you think they're going to do, move on to the 2022 class? Yes, they are. Pause on that one. Bookmark that idea. We'll circle back to that. But here's what else they're going to do. They're going to keep evaluating the 2021 class, and they're going to keep evaluating their current commits, and they're going to keep evaluating kids that aren't committed to them. And if they got a high four-star offensive guard out of Sunshine, Florida, that wants to commit, and they're looking at the current commit list, and the kids that they have currently committed, they haven't evaluated with as good a grade, you don't think that there'll be some work potentially done there? You don't think that with all this time left between now and even the early signing period, you don't think that staff's above gently suggesting to kids, keep your options open. I mean, we'll take your commitment, but keep your options open. You might want to look elsewhere. That's going to happen. If we're just being honest with ourselves, that could happen. So there's going to be a lot of flux with this class. It could be positive. It could be negative. It could be a net equalizer. We don't know what's going to happen. But I'll tell you what excites me the most if I'm Tennessee. If I go from being ranked in the 10 to 15 range and the next cycle I'm number 10, and let's say, just for argument's sake, let's say number seven. Let's say this class finishes number seven. Well, number one, that's the best class we've signed under Jeremy Pruitt. And number two, this staff, by way of landing all these kids in May and their main task being just holding on to the current commits, they have probably gotten a massive head start on the 2022 class. And the 2022 class, once you've gotten a bunch of talent already in place, that's the one where you look and say, could they finish top three? The 2022 class with Tennessee, that'll be the one where you start talking about the volunteers threatening for the top spot. They're not going to do it this cycle. They'll have a really good class this cycle. But what they're doing now paves the way for a potential springboard into what they could do next cycle, which is they just proved a lot of stuff the previous cycle. They've got the talent on campus to where one more layer's worth of another class could compete for a championship. That's where you really start seeing some people all of a sudden get uncomfortable with Tennessee football not being what they're supposed to be anymore. And what they're supposed to be, according to you, is just this big orange and white pinata that comes into town or you go up there. It doesn't matter where we play you because we'll be favored by three touchdowns anyway. Once Tennessee's no longer that, 
All they got to do is make you uncomfortable. They're like the gnat around your ear right now. It just aggravates you enough to where you pay enough attention to swat them away, but then you never quite kill that gnat, do you? The buzz comes back about 10 seconds later. Tennessee's not going away. This is not going to be a flash in the pan. This class is not going to finish outside the top 10. They're not going to have this mass wave of decommitments. They're not going to start off the season this year like in all likelihood, like they did last year. And so just quiet momentum. Well, quiet depending on where you are, but just quiet momentum. You don't have to fill the gap overnight. It didn't get created overnight. So I'm excited. If no one else is outside of big orange country, I'm excited. Uh, Jameson, <laughs> what's up with Bama recruiting? Yeah, I was looking at this earlier today. Bama's got four kids committed. I think it's four. They just landed a big-time receiver. They got two big receivers committed already out of Florida. Where else? I don't think they recruit receivers anywhere else but South Florida. Uh, if you're north of Orlando, Florida, and you're a receiver, you probably just need to look elsewhere because uh, Bama's got this little circle, basically uh, where Howard Schnellenberger uh, trademarked the Miami recruiting blueprint. That's the Alabama recruiting blueprint, the receiver position. Now, what's up with it, Jameson, is I think you're already in the process of seeing them start to make a move. They're ranked in the 40s right now. Few truths in an uncertain world, kids. Alabama's not finishing outside the top 25 in recruiting. I don't think they're finishing outside the top five in recruiting, let alone where they are right now. Here's what they like to do. They like to be ultra picky. They like to be ultra selective. And what happened? What just happened? What were we just talking about? Well, what happened is the spring evaluation period where number one, coaches can be out on the road, but number two, you can get kids in camps and you can do your own in-person evaluations. All that was tossed out the window. And so Nick Saban doesn't get to do the kind of evaluation that he wants to do. Now, it's not necessarily a disadvantage for Alabama because no one else got to do theirs either, really. So the... the the playing field's still roughly leveled. It's just now Alabama has changed up a little bit about what they do. And so you are now going to see them start to take some kids, start to take some verbal commitments. It's not that they have their class loaded up and all the kids suck. It's that they don't have anyone in the class. And uh, you talk to anyone around Alabama, there's no concern about whether they're going to be able to get elite kids. There's no concern. There never should be. And there's not right now. They'll start taking some kids. I know they got one the other day. I think they probably have anywhere between two and six more probably ready to pull the trigger as soon as they get the green light to, and then others who they're very much in play with. My point is, come early to mid-December, you'll be talking about them and finishing inside the top five like you always do. I know it looks weird right now to see those class rankings, but just as much as it looks weird to see Alabama ranked outside the top 40, Look who's currently ranked inside the top 10. And that's no knock on anyone there. But I mean, if you really think that top 10 is going to hold through December, you're crazy. Landon asked right before the show went on the air, uh, what do you make of the Georgia quarterback situation? Well, I think it's Jamie Newman's job. I think it's uh, his party there. I don't necessarily know. And like I've talked about a number of times, I don't know what to make of it. That's your question. I don't know what to make of it, only because I don't know what style of football they're going to want to play there. I've gone over this quickly, just kind of a, a cheater's guide to the overall take that we've had on Georgia is, you know, Georgia goes through what they went through last year, and they were banged up defensively by the time they played LSU. But regardless of what the state of that program is, they got pasted by LSU, and they played good. That's what they know. I mean, they played good and still got flooded. They got drowned by LSU's offense to where – you know, I think Kirby Smart finally looked around and said, well, I, got, I can have the number one defense in the country. I got to play teams like this. Uh, and if it's not LSU, I'm going to have to play Alabama. Then if I get in the playoff, I got to play Clemson. I got to play Oklahoma, man. I've, 
I, we got to be able to trade points. The best defenses he was ever a part of at Alabama, they didn't go through any seasons aside from the 2011 season where they just shut everyone down defensively. There was a game or two in there every time where they had to trade points with someone. They could have number one defense in the country and have to win 48 to 42 at Ole Miss one year. So you got to do that at Georgia too. And so you got to do a couple of things. Number one, you got to have the horses in the barn. They didn't have that from a personnel standpoint last year. Number two, you got to have the right quarterback. Is Jamie Newman that? They hope he is. Number three, even if you got all that in place, you got to have the right system in place. So they made a change to the offensive coordinator position, but they lost spring the most integral time to install, especially new concepts, new systems, new offense with a new guy under center at quarterback. When you lose all that and you know you got that elite defense coming back, you got to ask yourself, Kirby Smart, very risk averse in nature. You know who he learned under, very risk averse. Is that the kind of guy that's just going to say, oh, so what if we didn't have spring, man? We had these Zoom meetings we installed everything over Zoom, and then we got in fall camp, and those four weeks told me all I needed to know. Hey, let's just turn it loose offensively. You remember the game they lost last year, South Carolina? You remember what they lost that for? You remember that minus four stat in the turnover category? Guys like him don't forget that. Guys like him look around and say, only way we're losing most of these games is if we take too many risks. So is he all of a sudden going to become a guy that says, I'll oh, turn it loose, man. Caution to the wind. Let's turn it loose. I don't know. I think a lot of people expect one radical or the other, and as usual, probably in between. It's where we're going to land for Georgia this year. Last question here. Uh, Kevin asked, where does Tua's little brother end up? Talia Tongavailoa is his name, and he is in the transfer portal at Alabama. Well, no longer at Alabama now. He's in the transfer portal, and uh, he's not coming back. Some of these guys enter, like JT Daniels enters the transfer portal. He could return to USC. Baby two is not returning to USC. This is worst kept secret at Alabama, man. Everyone knew this was coming. No one ever, no one ever thought he was going to challenge for playing time there. I have it on very good word that it did not take very many practices for them to realize he's a good quarterback. He's not a guy that's going to be able to play at a championship level in the SEC. And so very quickly they realized that's not going to be a serious contender here. And so it was a foregone conclusion that once Tua was out of there, he was going to be out of there shortly thereafter. So I think this got a lot of national headline the other day. Folks around Tuscaloosa, it was kind of like when Scott Cochran left. Nationally, it was like a atom bomb. And then you get closer to Alabama and they went, oh, man, what are we going to have for lunch? And so that was kind of collectively the reaction to him leaving. Where is he going? For a long time, I heard Maryland because I heard... Uh, Loxley was very close with him. And, you know, Maryland obviously does not have the roster Alabama has right now. But given that his older brother is now at Miami, and we know where he is now, whereas we didn't when those rumors were flying, I don't have any information on this. I would assume he'll probably look for a place to play down there. And this, by the way, as a kid, I'm not handing out career advice, but this is the kind of kid where if he landed at a Central Florida, South Florida, Florida Atlantic, Florida International, one of these G5s that don't perennially have five-star future top 10 NFL draft picks coming in, he's a guy who could carve out a niche and make a name for himself and end up being, if in the right system, a very good and prolific quarterback. I'm, I'm not trying to tell you he's terrible. I'm just telling you he's not Trevor Lawrence. I'm telling you he's not Tua Tonga-Vailoa. I know that hurts to hear. I don't think he's watching the show tonight, though. Again, uh, I want to remind you, for the third week in a row, we had really good traffic on our Late Kick Extra podcast. I record that Tuesday night. I release it Wednesday with the help of Tani and Connor and the guys 
in the uh, podcast department, uh, the podcast wizards, if you will. And so, again, there is a pinned section right below the YouTube video where anyone who wants to get questions in for the Late Kick Extra podcast, that's all it is, just Q&A. Rapid fire back and forth Q&A. If you want to get a question in and you want to get it addressed, put it in the comment that I've pinned right below the video. You'll see it clear as day. I'm looking at it right now. Reply to this post with your questions for the Late Kick Extra podcast. You can also email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com, or hit me on Twitter. DMs, regular tweets, I see them all. I try to respond to as many as possible. And so uh, I'll go as long as the barrel full of questions requires me to go. So I will talk to you next then. We will be back live with Late Kick Live this coming Thursday. It is 7.47 p.m. if you're watching live Central Time, 8.47 Eastern. We've got 13 minutes until Last Dance 7 and 8 comes on ESPN. Free plug there, probably the first and last time. Until next time, thanks for watching, guys. Got a very good traffic tonight, and we will see you Thursday night, Wednesday for the Late Kick Extra podcast. Have a great week. Stay safe. God bless you. We'll see you next time.